0: Hey, Michael here. Uh, You will now hear uh, some episodes of The Michael Curdley Show that we had branded differently uh, called Unusual Profits or some such like that. Same show, same person, just me interviewing people and producing content that could be helpful on your journey and mine as well. So uh, with no further ado, here's the episode. Hey, Michael here. Uh, Sponsor for today's show is actually uh, a product that I'm a part of called DM Bridge. Uh, And what DM Bridge is, uh, is a service that we built Uh, to solve the problem that Twitter's direct messaging functionality is a total mess. So we built DM Bridge to help you fix that. Um, A lot of the other solutions uh, do things like requiring you to install a whole nother inbox. We didn't want another inbox. So we created DM Bridge. And what it does is it takes all of your Twitter DMs and has them appear inside of your email inbox. So you can reply to them just like it's a regular email. You see them just like it's a regular email. You can search them later like it's one of your regular emails all just by using DM Bridge. So uh, we're currently live with the product. Uh, would love for you to sign up and become a customer uh, and check it out. So you can find that at dmbridge.app uh, and go on there, put in your name uh, and be either part of the beta or join us as part of the live use of the product. And again, check it out, dmbridge.app. All right, welcome to the Unusual Profits Podcast. I am your host, Michael Girdley. I am super excited to be back for another week. And today we have something that I'm really excited to talk about, which is the vehicle armoring business. You know, this is one that when I talk to folks that are listeners, they were like, hey, go, go talk about this business because it's just so unique and so interesting. And today we have Mark Burton, who's the CEO of a company out of Utah called Armormax. Um, which is, Mark, the, the number one, the market leader for, for, this, for this stuff?
1: Yeah, that would be correct. As far as number of facilities mm-hmm. around the world, as far as I believe, unless I'm mistaken, as far as longevity mm-hmm. in the business and in the industry, and, and definitely the number one innovators.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Well, cool. Well, love to start with how did you get into this business? You've, you've been doing it for over 30 years now. Love to hear your story of how you got into it and have continued on. Well,
1: quickly, I, was a, I graduated in accounting. I went to work for, at the time, one of the big eights, uh, KPMG. It was actually Pete Marwick at the time. I was working with them, um, Pete Marwick, when they merged with KPMG. And, and as happens many times, I was approached by a headhunter. And I had five offers in in one week, and sure. one of them was to go be the controller of a company that that did worked a lot on ballistic materials yeah. and things like that. And within a very short period of time, I, I was able to begin running day-to-day operations, and then the market was shifting. Uh, the private sector was starting to need uh, personal security, especially in Latin America. And so it shifted more to. Passenger vehicles. As I was overseeing the operations and the day-to-day operations of the company, and so um, I was there for about four or five years. It had a change of ownership, and I made the decision not to stay with the new owners. That was in Utah, also, or no? That was over. In, that was in another part of the country. Okay. And then um, at that point, I had a small family, and so I just decided it was time to to look to something else. You know, i had been there about five years. I was still young. The circumstances where we were at with regards to schooling and things for our family was not necessarily ideal from the standpoint of education and things. And so um, my wife was originally from Utah, hmm. and so we decided to move back without a job. But the, the previous owners had treated me very well. Um, I had started a number of other businesses at the time as well. I bought a business or two, and really, I really enjoyed the entrepreneurial side. You know, I felt like accounting was great for me. It gave me a great background. It gave me a lot of great skills. I was very marketable, but yet, you know, the entrepreneur side was just incredible. I enjoyed it a tremendous amount. The freedom, the you know, uh, the stress <laughs> at the time. Um, <laughs> and anyway, so I I moved to Utah, and then I was contacted by one of our our customers. The armoring car business, the armoring passenger vehicle business, is a very uh, relationship-oriented business. Okay. You're dealing with people's lives, um, and you're dealing with some of the wealthiest people, if not the wealthiest people in the world. You can say there's something about boys and their toys. You know, They take a very personal interest. This happened to be a governor in a Latin American country, and he had been attacked in one of the cars that I had previously done for him. But the, the technology back then was, was basically what everybody thinks of, you know, steel, heavy, things like that, that. And they were, to be honest, as you look back at it, they were really ugly and, and not very user-friendly, if I can use that phrase. And so I, I would get a little bit, as I would meet with these customers, I'd get a little bit uh, beat up. You know, they said, we need these cars lighter, we need them better, we need them to be, you know, more user-friendly, basically. And so this, this individual contacted me and I said, well, I'm no longer with the company. He says, I realize that. But he says, you and I have a great relationship and I want you to build me and my family three cars because he had survived an attack, a very um, serious attack in his car. He probably shouldn't have survived it because these are, you know, these are defensive vehicles. They're not made to, they're not like tanks. Okay. They they are protected, but eventually like a tank, they can be defeated. And so anyway, I told him I didn't have a company. I really wasn't interested at the time. Well, he called me three days in a row. And again, we had built that trust. And so he convinced me after the third day, telling me how much he was going to pay me uh, to come down and meet with him and, and to take these cars. And at the point, that point, I didn't have a company. I didn't have any Any employees. I didn't have, you know, I didn't have a corporation formed or anything like that. In fact, when I met with him at a restaurant, he's the one that named the company. Uh, The the original company, actually, the parent company is called International Armoring Corporation. Mm -hmm. ArmorMax is the subsidiary which we use to open up all our foreign facilities. And it's the name of the technology that we developed. And he basically said, I want that technology that you, you talked about. And I, it was only a theory at that time, the lightweight technology. And it's something that I knew I could do, but yet the owners did not, they were making, they're making incredible money mm-hmm. and I, you know, and, and again, they were, they were treating me very well. I'm not complaining, but they were just kind of the wheel's not broke. So let's not fix it. And so, and that was part of my decision to leave at that time too, not necessarily to start a new business, but because, you know, they weren't progressive. They just wanted to, you know, status quo. But anyway, after three days, I met him. He gave me a deposit, 50% deposit on three vehicles, uh, delivered the vehicles to the United States. I formed a a company and that's how we got started.
0: Wow. And so this is early 80s uh, when this happened? Thirty? No,
1: early 90s. Early 90s. 90s. But Mm -hmm. I had already been involved in the business uh, for five years at that point. So International Armoring Armor Max has been around since nineteen
0: ninety-three. Okay. So you've you've got your first customer and he has basically forced you into the business, it sounds like. Well <laughs> I think a lot well, of people <laughs> I mean
1: money money does interesting things,
0: doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of people would love to have customers that call them three days in a row trying to give them money. Like that's that sounds pretty great. Yeah. So then how do you you, you go from then to starting to expand the business to more than one. You have one client now, and it's then okay. How do I turn this from a consulting gig to a to a business at that point?
1: Yeah. Well, what to a certain degree, you know, when you when you start a business, you prepare for your your success, but you also prepared to be uh, take advantage of opportunities, mm-hmm. and you get lucky sometimes. I spent six months doing R and D. I hired uh, I hired six guys that had never armored cars before here in Utah. Mm-hmm. And they would work at night. I was just, I didn't want them to quit their day jobs. There was a company here called Volvo White, which you may be familiar with. They built the big trucks and they had just closed down and moved their operation to Tennessee. And there's a whole bunch of individuals that didn't want to move to Tennessee with them. And so they had accepted other jobs and they'd been kind of through a traumatic employment situation. And some of them were uh, school bus drivers. Some of them were mowing lawns at, at, uh, at golf courses and things like that. But yet they were highly skilled in what they did. And so, but I hired them at night. And so during the day, I would do the R&D. I set up the facility. It was just a, a simple facility, 5,000 square feet, nothing too fabulous. But I had the idea. Mm-hmm. I developed the, the ArmorMax material, which is, you know, I believe that all businesses need to differentiate themselves. That was our secret sauce. I mean, talking about the armoring industry, ballistic steel weighs 13 pounds a square foot. Okay. Um, at the time I developed a synthetic fiber laminate. I went out to the company that, uh, each one of the companies that developed the, the fiber. And fortunately my client was patient. He knew that I, where I was at, I was very upfront with him. And so he was giving me the time that he knew I could do it. And he trusted me. And that was, that was huge in our, in our early success. And so Anyway, I developed this, this fiber, and it, at the time, it weighed 7.98 pounds per square foot. Well, to let you know today, that, that same material that has that same ballistic resistancy weighs 2.5 pounds a square foot.
0: Wow! So, so over the
1: last 28 years, we've been able to continue to refine it. But anyway, we did those first three cars, took us about six months, to be honest, yeah. um, to develop how big,
0: those. How big were those contracts in total, the, that, that first one?
1: Oh, the first one, it was about, uh, let's see, 225,000. Okay. Okay. They provided the vehicle. Okay? okay. And they had he'd given us the deposit, Right. And again, this is, I haven't told many people this, but I only ended up putting $2,000 of my own money into it wow. to start it. And because I had the deposits mm-hmm. from these guys, I didn't need to, you know, I, I designed the glass. I, you know, I did all that and I contracted with people to do that. And so, we were really profitable. And this is unusual. We were profitable from almost day one. Okay. In that case, when we delivered those first three vehicles, the country where we delivered them was in chaos, Uh, kidnapping. The disparity between the haves and the have nots was tremendous. There really wasn't a middle class. There was extreme violence. The future president had been assassinated at a rally. So, you know, like I said, the kidnappings were huge. And so when we delivered those first three cars, nobody had ever seen anything like that before vehicles that were designed like that for, I'll I'll use an example. We used all curved glass in the vehicle where prior to it, everybody was putting flat glass in behind curve Hmm. or removing the curved glass and putting the, the flat glass. So you could see those cars a mile away. I mean, it was like a pig in a blanket. I mean, they were just, they were ugly and they hadn't seen that. And plus the lightweight nature, um, we're talking between 50 and 60% weight savings on the vehicle, which is significant to a car that was never intended to have that kind of weight or to be armored. Okay. So we, we took a couple of simple concepts at the very beginning. And, and a lot of these were developed on the plane ride home from that first meeting in the restaurant with that client that convinced me. I mean, we, I just, it was, it was almost, it was incredible. I still have that little black binder. It's in my, it's in my, my vault. I just was, it was like a flood of, of ideas, you know, once, once I got decided I was going to do it, it was so exciting at that time. I mean, I drew schematics, I, you know, and probably only about um, 50 to 60% of them made them uh, made them to reality, you know, and there was a lot of business principles. I read business books like it. The ones that were available at the time, you know, I was just I read and I read ink magazine and, and all those things. And it was exciting to me. And so, you know, a simple principle there was we designed the armor to the car versus the car to the armor. okay, which was significant in our our production process. So anyway, we delivered those first three cars and the country was in chaos and we're only talking one country at the time. -hmm. Okay, it wasn't the U.S. Okay, it was a foreign country, and then the other thing I did, and this is, (laughs) people laugh at this, but I'm kind of a cheap, cheap guy. I'm tight, right? And so I knew who the customers were in this country. Okay, they were the CEOs of the uh, of the multinational companies, and there was only really about a thousand of them in that country, less than a thousand. And so I decided this industry had really kind of was a mom and pop industry before. Mm-hmm. It really was. I mean, it's still a niche business, but the, the evolution has been tremendous as far as the change today versus back then. And so I decided to do a marketing campaign, which had never been done, a direct marketing campaign. And so I found all these addresses and names, and I knew some of them, but you know, a fraction, just a fraction of who they were. But I found them in in the reference section of our library, but they wouldn't (laughs) let us they wouldn't let us check those books out. And so what I did was, you know, one thing about starting a business back then is you get a whole bunch of salesmen coming to your door offering you services. And one of those things was we had like three or four printers in our I mean, not printers, but copying machines in our uh, office because everybody wanted us to try their to try their copying machines. And so I asked the one guy, I said, well, what's your, what's your smallest copy machine you got? And (laughs) he said, well, we got this one. And then um, I said, oh, great. Can I borrow it? Can I use it for a little while? He said, oh, yeah, great. This is a great machine. And I ended up um, leasing that machine, by the way. So it's not, I wasn't (laughs) using this guy. But anyway, so I took it and I carried it into the reference library. And they had a copying machine, but they wanted 10 cents a copy. And I said, I don't want to spend 10 cents a copy. That's just, that's crazy. And so I used this borrowed, at the time, the borrowed copying machine, and I copied the entire reference section of all those thousand names. And then I took it took it to my home and I had the old Apple Macintosh and my wife would input all the names and, and stuff the envelopes and everything and we sent it out. So it was just kind of one of those things that just everything kind of just came together And so I started getting calls when all these things were happening and they saw the cars and I started getting these calls. And so I was down in this country twice a month. And at the time I was feeling, I was living the dream because I mean, I would go into a meeting and they'd pull out of their drawer, this envelope with my letter in it. Hmm. You know, in fact, the picture on the brochure there wasn't even an armored car at the time. I mean, I just took a regular car. You couldn't tell the difference, but (laughs) I just said it was a sample because I didn't even have an armored car at the time that I could take a picture of.
0: Can you say what country it was or? Yeah, it was Mexico. Mexico. Okay. Sorry. Keep keep
1: going. This is great. Well, and so anyway, we went after that six month R&D period and delivering those first three cars, the next 12 months were unbelievable. We went, we went from those six employees, we went to 90 employees in 120 days. Wow. Okay. And- In the 12-month period of time, we ended up building over 225 vehicles, okay? And that was, nobody had ever built over 100 before. And and to put that in perspective, you know, you're looking at about 750 labor hours on these cars. And these are guys that you can't advertise, you know, people that have armored car experience, you know. We're looking for builders of armored passenger vehicles. So there was a lot of training there was a lot of mistakes made. And then the accolades started coming. Um, the next year, you know, the, the awards, we were one of the hottest companies in America by Ink Magazine and, you know, things like that. And we weren't even applying for these things. These just hmm. came. So we got a lot of recognition. And at that point, and this was before the internet, okay. At that point, we started um, getting inquiries from other countries. We listed in the Thomas registry. I don't know if you're familiar with that. That was a a volume, like an encyclopedia volume of wor- world um, suppliers, manufacturers, mm-hmm. and they put them in the commerce departments in um, in embassies around the world. And so, you know, talking about a niche market, I mean, uh, a country in South America had four armored cars in their whole country. How do you market to that? I mean, you don't even know who those, and, and a lot of them are very discreet. Okay. And so that was over 10,000 cars ago. You know, since then we've done vehicles for 47 different heads of state. Uh, we've done the Pope Mobiles, but we're now a designing, engineering, and manufacturing company. Anything to do with lightweight armoring solutions, you know, we are involved in that a lot of times. I mean, we did seven of the radomes in the DMZ between North Korea and South Korea. Mm-hmm. We've done trains, we've done helicopters, we've done snowcats along the, the Turkey-Iraq border. Hmm. And that's what I I like. They're not always the most profitable, okay projects. I mean, they're good, but they're not the most profitable. But it, that's what keeps you that at me. It keeps me interested in the business.
0: Yeah, super cool, super cool. Well, and then so all the all the work is being done in Utah at this point, or and has it been that way? The no, whole time? we have
1: we have eleven facilities now. Okay, um, we have actually three facilities here in Utah now, and one in Atlanta in the United States and the rest of them are out of the country. We no longer have any facilities in Latin America. Okay, And so a lot of that happened. I I mean, I sold the business at one point uh, very shortly after I started it and they defaulted. Um, And there's a lot of lessons to go involved in that. And I've been involved in, I'm an angel investor. And so I've been in angel partnerships. And so I've been, I did that for, you know, for a while as well before and then I just keep coming back to the armoring business. I mean it, it's always been going. It just whether it's been through uh, a management team or through my what it is now with my with my sons involved. Yeah. And that. and that's been a good thing.
0: That's great. Well so um something you said you don't have any facilities in Latin America anymore. Could you tell yeah. us about that journey? I assume you you put them to have those closer to your customers, but then you know, how, uh, how did that go down in terms of making a decision to be there? And then I guess not doing that anymore.
1: Well, what, uh, the challenge became it became a race to the bottom. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, once you got established, when we when we started in Mexico, there was one, maybe two competitors in the country and the quality was very poor. But over time, as the market grew and this is just a natural progression of business locals came in became involved they don't necessarily do the lightweight and we still do a lot of cars for mexico because of our technology Mm -hmm. and because of the the quality and things like that of the product but there's a lot of people that will say well i can save twenty thousand, and you know i'm still protected whether they're protected or not you know i can't i can't guarantee that and so when i say a race to the bottom You know, you you get a mom and pop and he's happy doing two or three cars a year at $20,000 a piece. Mm -hmm. You know, for him, it's that's a great business. For us, uh, we don't make any money. And, you know, it's it's a totally different part for product. It's like, you know, some products coming out of Asia versus some, you know, out of Europe or out of the United States. You know, the quality is just different. They have triple the weight added. You know, anybody can slap steel in these things. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not a lot of you know, brain cells involved in that. For example, we have, we have a process where we do five different things to the door to prepare it so it doesn't, even though it's, you know, it's only 30 to 40% of the weight, we do five different things to the door to make sure that it, it closes well and always will close well. And hmm. I mean, they don't have any of that. In some, in some cases, they don't use, use ballistic steel. They just use regular steel and the client never knows until he's attacked. Wow! And so that's why we left. It just wasn't, it wasn't profitable. It was a a bigger headache than it needed to be to to do that. I mean, I would love to be back in Mexico right now. I mean, Mm -hmm. in in fact, I was looking at partnerships and things like that, but international partnerships are very, very difficult, right? especially in a niche business like this, uh, because I call it my shoe tying principle, Mm -hmm. you know? Before you know how to tie your shoes, it's hard, but once you teach somebody how to tie their shoes, it's easy, and then they forget when they didn't know how to tie their shoes yeah. when suddenly they forget you and then they're bringing in cars on the side and they're not putting them on the books and I can go into patents. I can go into all of that if you know if you know international from an international aspect and things I've learned that I wish I knew before,
0: yeah. Definitely. I'm interested in that. One thing I'm curious about also going back to kind of that, that flood of customers that you had early on, like it, it sounds like this was a lightning bolt kind of, you know, year for you in terms of seeing, you know, this customer just basically beating down your door and giving you deposits to fund the business off the ground. And then this whirlwind of demand, what do you think caused that? What made you see that whirlwind? Was it timing? Was it Better product was it a combination of those things? How do you think about that?
1: It was definitely a combination. We can say luck. I mean for for the country of Mexico, it wasn't lucky because they were in turmoil. Okay, But for my business, we we were opportunistic at the time, but we were lucky. Um, things came together. I'm not necessarily, you know, it would have been nice if it was more of a controlled growth, okay um like for example in 3 years we did 750 Jeep Grand Cherokees that was unbelievable and that that became the car of choice and we kind of focused on that car but it was the turmoil it was the product and it was our efforts to market it that whole thing with a thousand well let me just give you an example you wanted stories i mean there was a gentleman that i was in his outer office waiting to to meet he was on his way to the office that day to meet me. He was one of the wealthiest. He was a bank owner. Mm-hmm. He was kidnapped on his way to work. Okay. I mean, I just happened to be in Mexico. He was on his way to see me and on his way to, to see me, he was kidnapped. He was held for, uh, for four months. He was ransomed for $30 million after mm-hmm. four months. But the following week, following his kidnapping, his family came to me and ordered 12 Jeep Grand Cherokees. Paid me 100% cash up front. I bought the vehicles. I did the armoring and everything. Okay. Now for the next three or four years, this gentleman, after he was released, he and every one of the members of his board of directors who were the who's who in the country would buy cars. So I was getting about 40 cars a year off of just this one contact and one individual that I had had, call it luck, but they love their cars. And so they're saying, and I'll use a fictitious name, but I'll say uh, you know, well, who does who does Jose Martinez get his cars? Well, it's International Armoring, Armor Max. Oh, we'll we'll get them from there. And so there was no question at the time. And so you know, forty cars a year—that's you know, around seventy-five thousand dollars for the armoring, and you know, forty thousand dollars for the car. That's that's pretty good. You know, that's four four plus million dollars a year just yeah. off of one customer. But, you know, we got to the point in in about a year let's see, it was about 27 months, 20, well, it's about 20 months, two years. We were at, you know, $50 million in revenue. And in in this industry, in a custom made industry, even though we tried to standardize everything, but it's basically still a customized industry. We we don't have robots building these cars. This is very labor intensive. And even though we have materials already, you know, pre-cut and designed to the car and things like that, Bottom line is, these cars are still, you have to have humans to put them in. And so that was significant. And to do 50 million, there was a year that back in 2004, I tried to get us to 100. I said, I want us to get to 100 million. Mm-hmm. And it almost killed me. I did 350,000, almost 400,000 miles, you know, going all over the world. It was during the Iraq conflict. I was, we were doing all the subcontractors. I was in and out of Kuwait. We had a facility in Kuwait. I was in, in London every, every month you know, and and meeting with government officials over there. And that's where the multiples come from is government officials. The private Mm -hmm. sector is onesies and twosies, right? Even corporations are onesies and twosies. And it takes just as much effort to work with a client with, uh, you know, with 140 cars as it does a a client with two cars. I mean, they talk just as much, to be honest. I mean, right now, (laughs) for example, I have 200 active customers. right? And so I get up very early because, uh, time zones, they don't know time zones. I'm, um, you know, I get up at three o'clock every morning and I have for 30 plus years. And then I travel to these. And now the last year and a half, it's been obviously a little bit, a little bit more challenging, but our sales have actually increased in certain areas, especially in the United States. And we can talk about that, but our sales in the last uh, 18 months have increased by 80% in the United States.
0: Why do you think that is?
1: Uncertainty. Uncertainty. They're not necessarily a, a you know a high-powered rifle fire protection type of package. It's more like random acts of violence, wrong place, wrong time, handgun type of protection. Because there's various degrees of protection. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody doesn't need what a president of a country needs. Okay. So we start at a handgun protection, forty-four magnum, three fifty-seven magnum, nine millimeter. We go up to a high-powered rifle, and then we go up to a high-powered rifle with armor-piercing capabilities, which is what we do for. Heads of state and a few indivi- other individuals that have a perceived threat or or an actual threat, um, and that's those are crazy cars. I mean, your glass is three inches thick; they'll stop, you know, just about what a tank will, but yet they look like a regular passenger vehicle.
0: Yeah, fascinating. So curious to probe into something you just talked through. It sounds like you're an incredibly driven, hardworking person, waking up at three a.m. every day, on the road all the time. So, are you are you the rainmaker for the company still? Or are you doing? Are are there other people selling as well, or, or is it just you?
1: Oh no, no, no. We have we have numerous people that sell. I mean, we have um, we have operations all over Africa. We still have our Philippine facility that's closed. Um, we haven't opened. We have forty fifty employees there that we're just trying to get to move to our other facilities. We have a couple of them here in the United States right now that. As far as employees. And then we have the, um, the Middle East operations. We don't have the Kuwait facility anymore, but we do have one in, in the UAE. We do a lot of the US government out of the UAE because they remain in that region. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we have individuals that are responsible for sales. What I do is we get about 100 sales inquiries a day. And that's a whole nother discussion about web presence and things like that. We focus a lot on that. Um, we were the first to put, you know, back in the nineties a web page up and and now we have a hundred thousand organic, I guess that's what you call it, um, visits a month. Mm-hmm. You know, and for a niche business, it's pretty good. It leads the end we lead the industry in that as well. But what I do is I take about four or five a day as far as some of those leads. And then I I work with those and and then once they buy, um, we have a team that that it takes care of them at that point. But I, I'm an initial contact. And, you know, this business is about educating the customer. It's a, you know, it's a, a little bit technical. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of misconceptions. Uh, people have seen too many James Bond movies, right? <laughs> and so it's about educating them and getting them confident or comfortable in what they get because this is all inside the cavities of the car. They've got to kind of trust you because they, when it really matters, you know, it's got to be right you know we have one chance right i mean it's got the armor has to be right and fortunately we've had we've been very successful and we've had over 300 attacks in our cars and we we calculate that that's over 500 lives that have been have been saved or protected mm-hmm. we don't know the outcome because there wasn't uh, there wasn't a, a situation that occurred so
0: you know one thing i'm curious about is if you think about typical businesses that have tried to scale custom work so custom auto you know auto improvement people or custom you know plane interiors any of that kind of stuff like i'm curious why when i look at most of those almost all of them have failed to scale at the level you have and i'm curious how you think that you've been able to you know build up a bigger defense you know a defensible business of one of this size where you know, all the little onesie twosie people in their garages aren't, you know, aren't taking business from you, you know, in mass. How, how have you been able to build, I think, a really sizable company given kind of this dynamic I'm talking about with scaling custom work just tends to not happen?
1: Well, I think it, a lot of it is just hard work, but I mean, it's innovation mm-hmm. and it's and hard work. I mean, like I said, we, um, we hate to lose one deal. I don't like anybody saying, well, we'll get the next guy. Where else, you know, or the other, the other comment that I hear sometimes is where else are they going to go? Well, I hate that attitude. I mean, I dislike it very much is, is that we don't want to lose a single person as long as the, as long as it makes sense. I mean, our average ticket sale is $140,000. Okay. So sometimes when, you know, somebody doesn't buy, I kind of go, man, I really thought they were good. Why didn't they buy well, it comes down to the fact that they're not going to buy because of the cost. Hmm. They might, you know, in these foreign countries, they might go to somebody that's cheaper. Like, for example, in, in the UAE and Dubai, you can get, you know, you can get some real garbage over there for a lot cheaper. And some people, you know, you have some accountant in some office in Switzerland for one of the NGOs that, oh, yeah, I can buy three cars for what it costs me for two cars from International Army and Armor Max. And they make a poor decision. Those cars last six months. And of the six months, they spend four and a half months in the shop, okay? Hmm. They've got rust pouring out the bottom of their doors, but they made a financial decision there. They made, you know, instead of the logical decision, and I can make a business just off of repairing other people's armored cars.
0: Yeah, super cool. Well, so switching gears a little bit to kind of the customer journey. So it sounds like you've got an average ticket price that's... And, and do you, do you typically supply the vehicle also, or do people, is it bring your own vehicle modification? How's the, how does this work there?
1: It depends on the country, but it's about 50, 50. Okay. Yeah. I would rather they supply the vehicle because that saves us a lot of time. I mean, in, in the supply chain, yep. uh, dealing with dealers is the hardest thing. We, just about, I mean, armoring the car is easy. Getting a dealer to, you know, sell us the right car is, is very difficult. I hear you. I don't know where they've gotten, what what gave them permission to become so arrogant, to be honest. I mean, Uh, it's, it's, it's unbelievable.
0: I personally keep cars forever. And it's just because I want to avoid the two day nightmare experience of having to deal with a dealership and just feeling like, no matter what happened, I got ripped off. Like, that's yeah. So so, that's what, you
1: you know, everybody's really on, on the same ground now with the internet and things Mm -hmm. like that. I mean, everybody can get the same prices and everything. It's just, it's the sales experience that is so horrid. And I don't buy, I don't ever go into a dealership either. We don't. Yeah. I mean, we, we do everything over the phone and, but even then, you you know, and I guess that's a general statement of the workforce. And I'm sorry if I show my prejudices, but we have big challenges here in the United States Yeah. with regards to that. There's uh, my son is in is at the Atlanta facility right now, and we're gearing up because we're having a tremendous influx from the East Coast. When we open that operation, we got a, a huge demand, but he's just going, I don't, you know, I think we're in a crisis mode here in the country. I mean, we have individuals that don't know how to work, and maybe I shouldn't get into this, but go ahead. they have um, very poor work ethic and they're addicted. They're addicted to their phones. I mean, you know, when you have a 22 or 24 year old that goes to the bathroom, 10, 12 times a day, you know, that's, that's safe for those guys that are over 60. I mean, that, you know, they're going there to use their phones and then, and then they're sassy and they don't want to work. And, and it's, it's hard. I mean, I love, that's what I was telling you. I love bringing in these foreigners that are grateful for their job and we pay them very well, Mm -hmm. but we also get a lot out of them because they realize if they don't perform, then there's five, six, seven guys behind them that will. And they're grateful for the opportunity and they have a work ethic. And so, I mean, that's, again, that's that's a generalized statement, but it's my experience over the last 28 years here in the United States. I mean, from those first guys that I had at Volvo White that were hardworking and they were grateful for the opportunity to make a. It- you know, a decent living. And I'm, I'm talking guys that you now we're paying between $16 an hour and $30 an hour. Mm-hmm. Guys that haven't, fin- a lot of guys haven't finished high school. And so once you start putting overtime in, you know, they're making $70,000, $80,000 a year, which maybe I'm too old school, but that's a, that's a pretty good salary um, for those type of, of skilled jobs. And here's the other thing I didn't even mention is everybody's my competitor now. If you can't tell, I'm on a little bit of a soapbox, but um, <laughs> everybody's going. my competitor. I got, you know, I've got other manufacturing companies that are coming in and they're taking my top employees. They're paying them three, four, five dollars. They're poaching three, four, five dollars an hour more, and then they pay them five hundred to a thousand dollars to bring guys for every guy they bring with them. You know, that's not just in the armoring business. That's just they find who the best employees are, and that's that's what it's it's come down to. And so my solution is, is to go get my foreign employees that are already trained. And that was another thing I was going to mention. The other guys, they're not willing to to listen and be trained. And that's, mm-hmm. that's hard. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I didn't mean to get off on that, but it, they, these are challenges that we're facing in the country with regards to productivity and things like that. And, and I'm not going to say it's because everybody's getting stimulus checks and things like that. I, I'm not going to make that judgment. I mean, I think, there's plenty of other people that are much more qualified than i am i'm just telling you the um the experience we're having i, I don't know exactly the source except the fact that i know what the the results are with it right. i know well and I know my family, you know, generally work a lot harder and are you know are, are there on time and things like that then then generally speaking the, the the body of workers in that segment of the marketplace mm-hmm.
0: it makes Pritch into the choir here. <laughs> so it's once you feel that pain for year after year, where I think as a business owner, especially if you feel like you're treating people really well and giving them opportunity, yeah. it's a it's a mutually productive relationship. To see there really be kind of a lack of appreciation for that, it's it wears on you after a while, really does. So I I feel I feel your pain.
1: Well, I own a I own a number of businesses in a number of different industries and it used to be it used to be just limited to this manufacturing industry but now it's across the board and i i think i can speak enough because of my experience to say that this is a problem across the board
0: i hear you i hear you uh so switching gears a little bit uh, the, so the customer journey i'd love to just get a profile of your of your typical customer so it sounds like they're relatively well off people that feel endangered is that kind of a high level or how do you how do you describe who your customer base is
1: well there there's a couple of different segments there's the governmental there's the military Mm -hmm. okay governmental head of state type of official um senator congressman that type of thing and i'm not just talking about the u.s Um, most of it you know the u.s in that situation we don't do the the president of the united states car that's done by the secret service but in these foreign countries that would be one segment then the military a lot of times that's special ops that's things like that well i let me just say in the government there's we have a contract with one of the government agencies that we've done over 500 cars for in the last 10 plus years okay okay and and right now we have uh, we have 36 but then in foreign governments we we're doing for example uh, middle eastern government right now we just got uh, not just but we within the last three months we got an order for 140 cars Okay, so they're the ones that give us the multiples, multiple units that you know, and those are good. Those mm-hmm. we make because they're, we're able to do those in an assembly line type of production process. So that would be those clients. Um, the onesies and twosies, though, are our bread and butter. Okay, okay, they're they're typically fairly well to do people in the United States. They're individuals that have a An amount, usually a business owner or somebody like that, uh, even a doctor or lawyer. Chicago is a big area. We do a lot of cars for doctors and lawyers in Chicago and real estate agents. Um, But those are lower packages. Those are packages that start at $30,000, you know, the glass and the doors. Okay. So it's much more reasonable for them. They provide the vehicle. We go pick it up. uh, We have the designs and patterns for them. Okay. And then there's the, uh, the wealthy of the wealthy. I mean, In the past six months we've done seven of the top 20 wealthiest people in the world we've done cars for
0: them okay and
1: we currently have and you'd recognize those names Mm -hmm. uh if i were to tell you Uh, but again we keep that confidential and they fly in they fly out i mean and i have in the plant at any one time i might have a dozen cars for those individuals and they're usually of a higher level Mm -hmm. Uh, the demand is you know the minute they get the contract we have They have people that work for them that, you know, this is the hard part of business is they call us and they visit us and, and they push, 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 push. And, and they, to be honest, they really, and and this is fine. They don't understand the the difficulty or the the process itself. And in other words, and that's what a lot of people in the United States don't know, but, but that's usually that's our customer base, not only here in the United States, but around the world. And so sports figures, done a number of we're doing a number of them uh that you know you would recognize the names we have one sports figure that's his wife is you know scared to death of the paparazzi and rightfully so and so you know they bought over the years they bought five or six cars from us uh it's not one they they buy every year but that every two or three years they buy one
0: got it and so they're saying okay i want an armored g-wagon right mercedes very very expensive mercedes so very
1: good car to armor by the way okay why is that well the the structure of them uh, the way they look when they're finished Mm -hmm. and the way they handle the we're able to maintain the original performance of them with the lightweight armor um we're able to maintain the original appearance and we're able to armor the entire passenger compartment i mean it's a uh, there's there's five or six cars that are more conducive to be armored than others and that's one of them
0: yeah what are the other ones um,
1: you have the Cadillac Escalade, mm-hmm. um, the Yukon Denali XL. Okay. You have the Jeep Grand Cherokee that I already mentioned And you throw in a sedan there. You got the, you know, the S series Mercedes, uh, type of sedans. Those are very, very popular. When we go with sedans, we, we recommend a, a high end, not necessarily European. The, uh, G wagon is an exception, uh, you know, uh, the Toyota land cruiser. It's not the best one to do, but it's the most popular one worldwide because of their parts distribution and their um, service network they have around the world. I mean, you can go to a sheep herder village in Afghanistan and build a whole entire Toyota Land Cruiser. I mean, it's just, it's, you know, they're so easy. And that that's the one we do the most of for the NGOs, mm-hmm. um, you know, like the World Bank and those kind of guys, uh, UNICEF and all those guys that are in those dangerous areas. Red Cross and people like that, you know, they they choose those type of vehicles. But that's, I, I, I got sidetracked, but that's not necessarily one of the top five as far as vehicles that are best to armor. But those other higher-end suburban, uh, suburban, Denali, Tahoe, those type of cars, those are very, uh, very conducive. I mean, the US, the GM product, I mean, just look at the doors. I mean, they're wide, they're big. I mean, you can fit a small child inside those doors. And so from the armoring standpoint, you've got plenty of space and whereas something like a Toyota Land Cruiser which is a great car or a Lexus LX570 they're great cars but they just weren't thinking of us when they built them i mean they you know they weren't taking us into consideration because the doors are very thin and so there's not a lot of room to work with i mean just think what we do we we take 2 to 3 inch glass and we have to put it in a in an opening that's 3 quarters of an inch how do you do that and still make the car look original and make it uh you know make it perform and that's that's the secret that's the difficulty
0: so somebody has said i i want an armor g-wagon by now you've had to go through an educational process with them it sounds like to say okay do you want stray bullet protection do you want armor piercing production do you want the full the full deal and they've agreed with you on what that's going to be then kind of what's the the next step besides their i guess if they're really rich they are people calling you every day asking you why it isn't ready what's <laughs> what's the next step
1: well, the next step is, I mean, we obviously we come to terms as far as what, what they're getting and, and make sure they understand what they're getting and what they're not getting. Okay. And then we sign in a, an agreement, a letter of understanding, LOI, you know, basic, not an LOI, but a, just a letter of understanding of basically they accept that these were the terms. Um, they give us a 50% deposit or in the case, if we provide the vehicle, they give us the money for the vehicle. And then if they have the vehicle, we arrange to have it picked up. And then we begin the process of, of manufacturing the, the components that go into the armor. It takes us about six weeks to do that. And, and in the meantime, if it's a fully armored project, we're doing the other areas. We're doing mm-hmm. the cavity. So we take these vehicles, we strip them completely apart. I mean, you can't tell what model they are. In fact, it's a it's an, a stage that we don't necessarily like the clients to come into the plant. Uh, because, you know, some of them kind of freak out. They just kind of say, you know, what have you done to my, my $180,000 G wagon to use that as an example. Now, those are fairly easy to to recognize. Some people mix them up with a, a Jeep Wrangler when they're, when they're all stripped apart. But, you know, other than that, they're fairly easy to notice, but, um, we do all our work inside the cavities of the car. Okay, And again, we designed the armor to the car, not the car to the armor. So that process there that that makes it a little bit easier from the standpoint of you know installation and time of reducing hours and things like that. So anyway, we put all the armor in. We've taken we use every part on the car again, except the original glass and the motors and the doors. We have to to make the windows operable, and we can make most cars' windows operable. It's not included in the main package except the driver's window. But anyway, we use all those parts again. We just have to modify them because what we've done is we've we've shrunken the the interior area of the vehicle. We've done hmm. things like put overlaps around the doors so no bullets can get in at angles and things like that. And if you look at the website, you can see some of the some of that work that we've done. And so anyway, and then we put it back together, and the glass looks like the original, even including the dot matrix and the blackout, um, so that from the outside you can't tell that it's an armored vehicle. And yes, you can tell when the windows go down because they're thicker Mm -hmm. Um, on a handgun. The glass is only is less than an inch thick. So it's not too terribly bad on a, on a handgun protection. We've added less than 500 pounds to that car. So, you know, that's two and a half men in the car, you know? And so you say, well, yeah. And that's distributed around. Plus we upgrade the suspension. So you get, you really don't even know you're driving an armored vehicle. Even in our higher levels, we have customers. Um, I just had a customer the other day. He was driving, he drives a G wagon, a G, a G550. And he says, I love the drive more than I now, more than I did before. Hmm. You know, I, I like that. I mean, it, it's just, you know, and other cars have more of a sound ending type of, you know, they're not as loosey goosey, especially the US models. They sound a little bit more Mercedes ish as it were, when you close the doors or from the the sound on the inside. Huh. That's the process. I mean, it takes what we call the presidential package, which is creating a cocoon on the inside without it looking like a cocoon. And the fuel tank, the run flat tires, the battery, the ECM, the operable window, the suspension upgrade, you know, that that takes time. So yep. right now our production delivery is about 14 weeks for those types. But if it's just glass and doors, that's two to three weeks. Once we
0: have the materials. It's very interesting that, you know, you managed to take so much of the steel out of the body of the car and reduce that by 85% plus or minus in terms of weight um, with the armor max material. What is the trajectory with glass getting better? And I mean, three inch glass is seriously thick glass to do some of this armor protection. Is that evolving as well? Or are we still kind of stuck in the stone age of big, heavy glass being the only thing that's going to work?
1: Well, I think we're not really in the stone age from the standpoint of visibility and lack of distortion and things like that, but unfortunately, until somebody a lot smarter than me comes up with a, a harder glass. And I have tried. I've paid uh I paid some smart people to try to figure it out, and I'm not doing that currently. I'm not researching it because they basically tell me that it's a trade-off. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, we can do harder glass, but you can't see through it, you know, the old Coke bottle bottom syndrome. You know, it's already a leaded glass combination with acrylic and polycarbonate. Now, the way we've been able to reduce down the weight of the armor max material is by by layup methods. It's basically using the same same synthetic fiber laminates, but the layup of them, and you know the crossing of it, et cetera mm-hmm. and and how we layer the different components to it. Um, you can't do that with glass. I paid an individual. he was actually it was in Israel. He was a scientist. He was a Russian guy, a very nice guy. I couldn't understand a word he said, but <laughs> had a translator there and I paid him to, he said, "I can do this, I can do this." and he used a lot of ceramics in in the glass uh-huh. and he was so proud when you know when he showed it to me, and I held it up and i couldn't I couldn't see through it i mean it was glass, but I couldn't see through it and that, it was lost in translation, obviously but I mean, I didn't pay him much, you know, as far as it wasn't an extended project, but still, I mean, we're, I mean, until somebody comes up with a hardened glass like that, that does not have that green look to it does, you know, until we get that, you know, till bullets bounce off. And I, I know someday somebody's going to figure it out. I mean, I, I really do. And that will be ideal. I mean, I, you know, I dream of the day that you can just take a, you know, a spray gun and, spray the inside of these cars or spray the paint on the outside of the car and they'd be ballistic, you know, that would make my life a lot easier. I'd probably be out of a job,
0: but (laughs) you buy buy it at the Walmart in a spray can. So, um, so of the, of the components that you are sourcing for each, you know, that it sounds like they're almost all custom build or are they, are are there any that are off the shelf that you're able to buy from other suppliers in bulk and start to see cost efficiencies there
1: well there's there's a little bit of that but as far as from the standpoint of our uh, you know our secret sauce i mean that's that's pretty much we do buy it in bulk but the raw materials to manufacture it the glass i mean there's becoming more uh, different suppliers around the world there's not a there's not that monopoly any longer Um, We do all the design work ourselves and then the layup method. We're kind of at their, at their mercy to a certain degree um, because of the autoclaves. And I've owned a glass manufacturing business and uh, you know, the breakage rate was greater than 50% in the autoclave and things like that. And so just very difficult and challenging to, because you have different models, every model, you know, it's like the custom armored car business. I mean, it's the same thing because you have every model has a different um, look. And that's why the big, Companies like PPG and Gobain and guys like that, they don't even want to be in the passenger business because, you know, they don't want to do onesies and twosies. They want to do the, the big projects like aircraft windshields and the train engine glass and stuff like that because they get to build them in multiples of thousands. Okay. Whereas when you say, well, I need you to do a Ferrari, you know, Testarossa windshield and they're going, you know, how am I going to amortize the tooling of that? 'Cause I'm only gonna do one in the, you know, in the lifetime. And and I've done cars like that just basically for favors for good customers that, you know, buy multiple cars. But you know, wow, that's crazy. I mean, I did a Volkswagen Beetle for that same guy that was kidnapped. I mm-hmm. did it for his 16-year-old son. In fact, when they first came out, this was about the time when those rounded. And and if you look at the backlight of the Volkswagen Beetle, and see I'm making you look at cars a totally different way, but You know, people get excited about those designs. I get a pit in my stomach. But what you have on the backlight of that car, for example, is you have a compound bend. It's going two different directions at the same time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Very difficult with ballistic glass because it's done with gravity. But he calls me up and he says, and this is the guy I was telling you about that I was in his outer office. And of course, we developed a relationship over the years. And he said, My son's turning 16. Will you do him a Volkswagen Beetle? Will you armor one? And I said, Yes. Yeah, you bet. You bet I will. And then I hung up and I go, how are we gonna do that? And <laughs> and we ended up doing it. But if you look at it sideways, you can see that it was not a compound bend. It was it was only bending laterally and not horizontally at the same time. So you don't have quite the bubble look on it. But on that car, did I make money? Absolutely not. Yeah. But I was doing 40 cars a year for his the people in his board of directors. So I thought, well, we'll just do it. And we, we've done Ferraris, we've done other Porsches, we've done, uh, Aston Martins, we've never done a Lamborghini, no matter what the videos say on, on YouTube, that was a YouTuber fabricating it. But anyway, can we do one? Yeah, we can do one, but you know, and they're fun for everybody in the, in the plant and, you know, we got a Lamborghini, we got a Ferrari and stuff like that, but from the accounting department, it's not very fun.
0: Yeah. I hear you. You mentioned owning other businesses, and I, I guess you got into the glass business because that seemed like it was a way to vertically integrate. Are, are the other businesses that you own, are they related to this or to the Armour Max business, or are they independent?
1: Uh, the only the only way they're um, related is the real estate side. I mean, um, putting up facilities, owning the facilities, and and um, renting them, for, uh, having the company rent them back from me, lease them back. Got it. We don't, sell, we don't sell the Armormax material. Mm-hmm. We only use it for building the cars and the other specialty projects. If we start doing that, we lose our, our competitive advantage. And this gets into the patents. I, used, I patented everything for a while. Uh-huh. A patent, in my opinion, internationally is only a right to sue somebody. Yep. Uh, I've won a lot of judgments for people copying my processes that are patented and things. And I've spent a lot of money on attorneys, but I've never collected on these judgments. I mean, it's been crazy. And so I don't patent anymore because it just gives them a a little bit of, in my industry. Anyway, it just gives them a leg up. I mean, they they're able to learn things that they wouldn't know anyway, mm-hmm. or wouldn't, wouldn't know by just buying the product, especially it has to do with the processes. And so right or wrong, that's my opinion. And I mean, I'm sticking to it, I guess. I mean, it's just, it's one of those things that you say, how's it you know and it's hard to innovate all the time you know you say you know where can you go from here from the standpoint of uh product development and it's very it's it's very difficult now i mean i can't see us getting much below two and a half pounds yeah uh, a square foot on the opaque material. it's got to be in a process somewhere and and it's got to be in the glass and until somebody else like i said is smarter than me that can figure out how to make that glass harder and more ballistically sound then you know and some things come up at every once in a while that we could probably apply that you ask about using outside sources and mm-hmm. to you know to better the the cost and the process but it's usually so expensive like this nanotechnology
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, I've looked at that and incorporating into you know that into the into the process and that's it's very difficult
0: yeah so in you have these global facilities I'm curious about the level of insulation you have against kind of the cyclical macroeconomic environment. Does does having the multiple facilities help you with that? Or is it just you're one of those businesses it just doesn't really matter if the economy's good or bad, your business is good? Or how, how does that how does that go? It
1: it tends to be it, it tends to be kind of um non-seasonal. Obviously when there's a world conflict, uh, our sales increase. Um the challenge we have at times is those those um, spikes, as it were, in demand, but we're, we're designed and, and you ask how, how it is that we've been able to survive. Um, a lot of it is the way we are structured. I mean, when we have an increase in demand, f- first step is to increase hours. You know, I know that sounds kind of elementary, right? But we start, we go to an over. Okay. And to be honest, in the, in the United States, we've been on an overtime for the last 18 months. Mm-hmm. The challenge we've had there, of course, is that we had to be shut down for a little period of time when we uh, we had some employees with COVID and they exposed everybody. So anyway, but that's kind of how we do it. Um, and then we move people around. You know, for example, in the U.S. right now, I have a couple of Nigerians and a couple of um, Filipinos. And I'd like to have a lot more Filipinos. Yeah. Uh, the Nigerians are really there for training but the Filipinos are there for training and to cover the um the increase in demand. And like I said, I have 40 of them that aren't working right now and I feel bad we're, we're compensating some of them, even though they're not working just because they can't, I mean, it's, it's a, a terrible situation for them over there. They're going to starve to death if they, you know, there's just no jobs. And so, but anyway, uh, and that brings a lot of loyalty too. And, and, and they're generally very loyal and that's, yeah when you've got you those good, loyal employees. And that's how we, how we kind of work through the bubbles. And I'm not saying that it, it goes, you know, we're at 100 miles an hour, with are hair and fire, you know, 24 seven, but it feels like that in the last 18 months to two years.
0: Right. Well, plus working around the inability to operate when COVID just shows up one day and it's like, hey, somebody got sick. We need to shut down for two weeks. I, I hear you. So
1: yeah, well, and there's, there's times with the with the pushing that I will show up in the morning and go, Hey, Joe took another job. It's it's not about two week notice. And then you, you kind of, you know, you prepare for the, uh, you know, for the next wave where all the guys that worked around Joe, you know, go join this other company too. And that's that, you know, <laughs> I will tell you that created a lot of new management um, challenges in the last little while. Yeah. I mean, uh, it, it really happened. You know? and, and try to explain that to somebody that, doesn't really care that being the end user, you know, that works for a boss that you is very demanding. Mm -hmm. I will tell you there's, there's some really understanding and nice, very wealthy individuals, but there's some others that, you know, just make it happen. I don't care, you know, and that's the daily call things like that. And, you know, there's even some that make threats and it's especially foreigners. I mean, it's just, that's the way um, Eastern Europeans are very famous for that, and you have to be tough. You have to have thick skin on that. You know, you say, "Okay, come pick up your car. It's in a thousand pieces, but it'll be out on the front uh, front road." I mean, we don't we don't do that kind of stuff here. Yeah, I mean, you know that, that, that again. That's you. You might say, "Well, those guys must be mafia or something." And Maybe they are. I don't know. But I mean, we, we adhere to all the exporting laws, so I'm hoping that gets taken care of that way. But
0: yeah, no, I hear you. So I mean as you're you're thinking about the trends and and where this business is going obviously it's been 30 years of of goodness what uh you know what do you see coming over the next couple of decades it sounds like there's some extra I mean what external stuff is happening it sounds like there's also internal stuff happening with your boys stepping into the business and becoming part of the leadership and that sort of thing
1: Well it, as I said it's it's kind of and I don't want to you know sound like we're bragging or anything it just uh, it's a unique business. Mm-hmm. And and like I said, and I can say that because I have exposure, I've been on boards of directors, I've been on advisory panels, I, and I've had to stop that just because I, I just, for one, I mean, been there, done that, I guess. And I, I've seen the uniqueness, you know, I think all businesses, there's probably 60 to 70% that's common mm-hmm. across the industries, you know, as far as running a business and as far as dealing with the challenges. And I think that's true in this business, but to a certain degree, you know there's the uh, the custom aspect, there's the relationship aspect, there's the client aspect that's totally unique from anything else that I've ever seen. And so have the ability to de- design and innovate as well as to be able to manage a business you have to have the whole package mm-hmm. and if a ceo th- comes in here and thinks and we've had it i've had a, as i mentioned i've had a mid management team that came in here and and I, I you know high level i mean they had great resumes and they failed miserably to be honest yeah. okay because they didn't have the whole package and that's what's unique about this i had a young man that worked for me out of college i i hired him as an intern and then he worked for me and he went to um he went to spain ran our operations there, our production facility. Um, then he wanted to go to Harvard. So he went to Harvard Business School. And while he was there, you know, he talked about it and they wanted to do a case study on us. And so they did all the interviewing and everything. And, and uh, you know, we're talking exit strategy and everything. And, and so these are some pretty bright minds. And they basically, the conclusion was, well, good luck with that you know because of the uniqueness of this business and I've had that comment from several very smart people I have you know I'm involved well I was involved with a, a startup of an investment capital company and I was on the advisory panel and, and I was the first investor in it and you know it, it involved companies like skull candy and uh, metaconnect and uh, stance socks and you know and uh, some really good companies and they, and and it continues to grow I think right now they're on their fourth fund and 250 million dollars and the, the managing partner and i are very very good friends and uh, you know we have a, a love for cars and and anyway and we've talked at it great length and he's i consider him one of the brightest minds i know as far as being able to you know see the end from the beginning type of thing you know there's those guys that you you talk to and i'm not like that i have to just work like a dog to do that but there's guys that can say you know they see what the Okay. Did you think about this? Did you think about that? And he's also said to me, "I don't know what you're going to do." I mean, I seriously don't know, what you're do because they're they at this point, and I've tried, you know, and I've had the I've had numerous offers to do it, but it all involves me um, staying with the company, and you know, now I have my sons involved, and 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 they each have their talents, but it's it's a very difficult. The environment right now in the world is very difficult, and. I can go in. I've had a kidnapping attempt in my life. I've had on two occasions, a gun put to my head um, because the countries I go to, there's a reason they need armored cars. Okay. And so, I mean, it was totally the kidnapping occurred attempt. It didn't happen. They weren't successful. It was one of those where the hair on the back of your neck came up. They tried to push me in a car and I was fortunate enough to roll out of it. It was right in front of the Marriott in Amsterdam you know, they had been tracking us, my wife was with me. And so anyway, those type of experiences that kind of lead me to think, is this something that I want my kids involved in? So no, I don't have all the answers. And I don't know the direction exactly we're going. I, you know, I'm really, you know, people say, well, what's your long term forecast? Well, it's to keep innovating and selling armored cars, you know, no, no, no. What about your, You know, your exit strategy, you know, where, where's this going? And, and to be honest, and and this is probably not the answer you want to hear is I don't know. Yeah. And, and I've looked for people that have the answers and to be honest, they don't have, I mean, they give me the standard um, textbook, you know, or other company. And, and again, I'm not saying that I'm all knowing and I'm not willing to open up to these other ideas. But because it is a custom business and you're familiar with the difficulties, you mentioned it before, of being able to uh, to maintain this business. I mean, how many limo businesses do you see out there? Yeah. I mean, you don't see any, and those are mass produced. I mean, they're they're very easy to make. I can go in the limo industry tomorrow, but do I want to? Absolutely not. Right. I mean, I have good friends that had limo business because, I, I mean, we've utilized them, but they struggle. I mean, they usually go off into... Custom-made rims or something like that, and again, you know, it's like um, building a fine home, finding a craftsman to do things. Mm-hmm. Very, very difficult. That's a dying. It's a dying trade.
0: Yeah, very interesting. Well, I mean, if my if my math is kind of right about your age, it sounds like you got some time to figure it out. So at least there's a positive, <laughs> a positive there. So
1: no, and I'm not, I'm not discouraged by it at all. I mean, I, no matter what I do. I mean, I've built some great, um, projects in real estate and I've had some other great successes in business, but I'm always known as the armored car guy and I'm fine with that. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things when you find something that you're good at, it's hard to, you know, that's why I said, uh, there's no retirement in me. I mean, it's, you know, I'm, I love working. I think, you know, I think there's a career in it. I mean, as far as longevity and life your mind is always active. And that's part of the problem is because your mind is always active. You wake up at night, you can't go back to sleep. right? And that's, I think that's a good thing to a certain degree. I mean, it's better than sitting in a rocking chair, right? I mean, I I travel when I want, where I want. I have, you know, I've kind of simplified. I sold four um, properties this last year, a ranch and a couple of homes and, you know, just, to simplify a little bit. And, you know, I have a couple of properties that I can go to and I enjoy and my kids and we take our kids on a trip every year by themselves with their spouses and wherever they want to go around the world. And so we do those type of things that, I mean, I don't know how how I, what I would do differently. Yeah, I, you know, I collect exotic cars and, you know, I, I do what I want to, you know, and I've been blessed and very fortunate to do, but I, you know, on the other flip side of that is we've worked very hard.
0: Yeah. But it sounds like you've enjoyed it. It's how you're wired. Yeah.
1: It's what, when you, when you started talking about, you love talking about business, you love doing all those things, you know, I do too. I mean, I, um, I used to invest in a lot of startups. I Mm -hmm. don't do that. I, I, I do post revenue stuff right now. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and that's just because I just don't have the time or really the, the desire to, to be a, a 24 hour consultant to these startups anymore. I it kind of, it's kind of one of those things been there that, and so with post revenue, you don't have to do nearly as much, but I just, whether they listen or not, I mean, now most of the stuff that comes to me, you know, to, to fund is high tech stuff and probably three quarters of it. I don't even understand what they're talking about. Um, <laughs> you know, the, so, so I say, I, I don't understand this. I'm sorry. I'm like, um, you know, I, I just missed that, um, that age when they did all that. I mean, they came out with word perfect when I was in my last year of college. Right, <laughs> So, um, <laughs> you know, I missed all the coding and everything, uh, software development and all that. I mean, I, am I'm, I'm enough. I, I have enough to be dangerous, but that's it.
0: Well, I mean, I will tell you having spent time with a lot of technologists who grow into CEOs and stuff, or even, you know, people coming from all different things, you know, one of the profiles I love the most working with are the people that, uh, washed out of the finance and accounting side of the house. Cause then, you know, like, like yourself, like you're not, I mean, just talking to you, I I don't think you're wired at all to be an accountant. (laughs) I think you'd be miserable and I can see why you decided to go be entrepreneurial, but man, like all these folks that don't have that finance and accounting background, ability to read a financial statement and, and the focus to do it and really understand what the, what the numbers are telling you. Like, I think there's a huge gift, whether, you know, I, I know it sounds like you're you regret not having the coding part a little bit, but the uh, the finance stuff. I'll just tell you from experience, like it is, it is a huge benefit, and I wish I wish I had taken more accounting classes instead of computer science classes as a as a young person.
1: Well, my dad, my dad was a physician, and he recommended I don't go that route. He was uh, on the board of the AMA, and he said, you know, there's big changes here. And he said, but whatever you do, make sure you get a skill going out of college, and I don't regret one bit having that experience with KPMG. I don't regret. I mean, that was, that was a tremendous experience. And, you know, and, and so it really was kind of a foundation as I look back and say, would I do it again? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because it gave me a perspective and with regards to the computer, you know, the the programming and all that, I am not wired that way. I will just tell you I've tried and it just, yeah. Can I work software? Absolutely. Can I work spreadsheets? Yeah. I, I can do spreadsheet. I just like the best of them. Copy paste. I mean, uh, you know. And I, and again, as you get older in doing this, you recognize that a lot of a lot of the stuff that they generate is is useless. <laughs> you know, a lot of that that you know, you can talk to my my accountant can tell you. He say, well, you need all this, you need that. And I said, no, I don't. I'm I'm good. You know, they want to do all these expensive. Cost accounting type of programs and things like that, and you know, you get to the point where you say, "I know business well enough," and they say, "Well, you need to prep it for the next, you know, whoever takes over if you're not here." I'm saying, "No, I don't." They they understand what you know. I can go out and I can look at a car, depending on how long it's been. I mean, when I when we sold it, and I can tell you almost within 10 hours how many hours we have on it. Okay, and that just comes that comes from experience. I recognize that. And you know, I don't need any all these fancy charts that said, "Well, we spent." You know, I can tell you, we've. You know, I can tell you, Gonzalo has spent. You know, fourteen hours more than he should on a on an operable window. Yeah, you know, and it's just one of those things. And I, and again, that just comes from experience. I'm not saying, but this isn't a standard business that I've chosen to to focus on at these later uh, later stages in my career. Yeah, it's it's really about. Having my sons, which are very good at what they do, understand the business, and having a you know having a business for them to go forward with, and then I'm helping them now. Not it's not vice versa. They are helping me, but I don't need that. You know, no. I don't need that. I just I want them to be able to. I I want the company to be strong and have a you know a legacy after because it 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 is a harder the second generation, third generation. I mean, you don't hear those being too successful for too long anymore um and so that's that's kind of what i do i mean you you find something you do good and and or the best that everybody else does and you know what else can you ask for i mean it, it, it's hard to walk away from that
0: yeah i hear you i hear you well th- this has been awesome thanks for investing over an hour and a half with me and i know the the folks that are going to listen to this are going to really enjoy it and your candor has been awesome and your experience just just a cool story and cool perspective. So, thank you very much, Mark. How, how can how can people support you? I know you guys are always selling cars. I mean, that sounds like one, but what what other things, any things that uh the listeners should know about and it, that would be helpful to you? Well,
1: well, I'm in the process of writing a book. I have been for a while. I you know, we do a lot of we get a lot of interest from Discovery Channel and, you know, Travel Channel and places like that. And we've done a lot of stories. Now it seems to be more YouTubers than anybody else. Hmm. Now that our story is a little stale, I guess, that's what, I, but I've had several offers to write the book and I just decided to because of the experiences and who we've met, you know, from, it definitely has led to a, to an interesting career mm-hmm. in the fact that not every day that you, you know, you get to be with uh, the top singer in the country, or the top golfer, or the top football players, and and the politicians. I mean, I've met numerous presidents over the years, and and they've all come with experiences. But I've met some very fascinating people around the world, and and so those type of experiences, as it relates to you know, just some uh, I think some bu- fun business applications there, and how we ended up there where we weren't ever expecting to end up, and so that's that's coming out here in the future but i don't know how people can support us we are we're doing fine <laughs> um if they know somebody that is concerned about random acts of violence around being at the wrong place at the wrong time that type of peace of mind that you that you desire when you're driving around or you know in those areas that you can't control you know they're not tanks that you're driving these mm-hmm. these are passenger vehicles and and the technology has come a long way. Yeah. And so you can use that. Uh, and it's not really, you know, some people say, well, that's horribly expensive. Well, it's all your perspective. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like insurance, you know, it's one of those things. If, if you're petrified, I mean, and we get calls like that every day and they, they apologize when they call I say, you don't need to apologize. There's, there's thousands of other people that feel the exact same way. And that, that gets back to that uncertainty. And, and, no, this is this isn't the total solution, but it you know it can help you feel a little bit more, a little bit more safe.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Well, cool. Well, thanks again for being here. You know, and I'm excited to get this one up and in front of folks, and um, you know, excited to also watch the journey and buy the book when it comes out.
1: All right. Hey. Well, thank you for your time. Absolutely.